You are listening to Energy 360 at CSIS. I'm Karthike Singh, Deputy Director of the Wadwani Chair here at CSIS, and I'll be your guest host this week. Today we'll be discussing the findings and recommendations coming out of a new task force on U.S.-India energy cooperation organized by the Center for American Progress. As some of you know, the United States and India have a strong track record of cooperating on energy. With a change in administration and a desire to continue this partnership, the U.S. government is launching the U.S.-India Strategic Energy Partnership in just a few short weeks. The task force aims to help shape this partnership through this Track 2 dialogue, and it is made up of experts from both countries. I'm joined today in the studio by Arunaba Ghosh, CEO of Delhi-based Council on Energy, Environment, and Water. And from CSIS, we have both Sarah Ladislaw, the Director of the Energy and National Security Program, and Rick Rosso, Senior Advisor and Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies. We've gathered these members of the task force to learn more about its recommendations and how to bolster energy cooperation between the two nations. So let's start with you, Arunaba. What are some of the recommendations of the task force? Thanks, Karthika. I, I think the number one recommendation is continuity. There is, as you mentioned in your initial remarks, there's a lot that the United States and India have been doing um, under previous administrations on energy cooperation, uh, whether it's on the nuclear front, or whether it's on clean energy, whether it's on R&D investments, and so forth. So the number one recommendation is let's not stop any of that because it makes sense from a business perspective for both sides, from an energy cooperation perspective for both sides, and for kind of deepening the, the overall strategic partnership between India and the United States. Energy is one of the central pillars of that relationship. Um, the other big... Um, message that we were trying to convey through through the task force is that there's uh, stuff to be done in terms of making existing technologies getting deployed in more efficient ways. And when I, when I talk about efficiency, it's really about how cost optimally can we do this? Whether we're deploying renewables, can we lower the cost of finance? And can the U.S. kind of financial services industry and the Indian sort of clean energy industry be collaborating? Uh, can we be looking at ways to jointly invest in new generation of, you know, uh, cleaner, uh, uh, even cleaner coal power plants and so forth? Um, so I would use these two as kind of two big areas that we've mentioned, but I know Rick has uh, another big idea up his sleeve, so yeah. I'm going to leave that to him. Yeah, absolutely, Rick. Uh, what are some additional thoughts that you have in this area? Well, I, I think, you know, Arnaba's first point is, is crucial, um, you know, making sure that we maintain the things that were happening. I think when the, when the task force was first created, a lot of us had thought that with, with President Trump coming in and looking to make such a clean break on a lot of the policies of the Obama administration, especially on energy and the environment, we thought that we'd have kind of an uphill climb. Although surprisingly, since the group was first created, we've had our first uh, head of state summit last summer, and they have largely chosen to maintain the existing areas of cooperation. But the one that, that seems to have fallen off based on the Trump's administration changing priorities is the global partnership aspects for it. The United States announcing our withdrawal from the Paris uh, Climate Accord. Uh, we do want to make sure that, you know, as we think about developing this partnership outside of just climate and energy, we got to look at all fronts. And climate and energy should be a part of how we look at this emerging global partnership, not sprinkled and, and taken apart, you know, kind of sector by sector or area of cooperation looked at individually. This is part of the bigger package. 
The other area, which, uh, you know, of course, we've been working on, although, you know, pale in comparison to Arnaba's knowledge about this topic, but uh, is on subnational engagement. You know, because ultimately, if you want India to meet its national goals and if you want this international cooperation to work, uh, you've got to make sure that, um, as Arnaba was mentioning, some of these technologies that are being created, some of the new ideas, the new processes are being deployed at the state level where push comes to shove in India. But also, there's another aspect of that, too. Hopefully, as India strives, based on political compulsions, that price points on electricity, for instance, that the world's never seen. If the grid's going to function, they got to hit price points the world's never seen before. There may even be some great learnings that American uh, energy officials can bring back here. How can you deliver uh, energy at price points the world hadn't seen before? So uh, there is a, uh, a multinational street as well as a bit more of a two-way street, uh, maybe some good ideas that can be conveyed back here to the United States. Kartike, if I could just jump in here for a minute. I think Rick and Arunabhav made some great points. Um, you know, first, I just want to congratulate the Center for American Progress for recognizing the need to keep up the pressure of this kind of strategic importance between the U.S. and India and on the importance of the alliance for the long term. It's precisely the kind of strategic thinking that the U.S. needs to be doing and often doesn't do uh, because of near-term pressures and distractions and things like that. So it was a real pleasure to be able to participate uh, in the energy portion of that dialogue. Um, and thankfully, you know, as we heard Secretary Tillerson's remarks here at CSIS, the administration uh, agrees uh, and does think that engaging with India uh, on a longer term basis and, and to work to broaden and uh, sort of strengthen that alliance uh, is important. And they included energy uh, in, uh, in that talk that he gave and in subsequent uh, engagements they've had. So we know that energy is on the agenda for the administrations uh, in both countries as it has been for a while. You know, as Rick just mentioned, I just it does take a broad coalition of people to build up these types of partnerships. Uh, and this is particularly true in the energy sector. Uh, we find, you know, around the world where we have very successful energy relationships, uh, companies, universities, states, regulators, all of these uh, engagements can create uh, a lasting partnership uh, that can be built on and re really requires this kind of um, multi-level, multi-sectoral engagement. Right now, I see a particularly strong opportunity for the U.S. and India on energy collaboration. Uh, this administration has been focused uh, predominantly on an exports agenda uh, and uh, focusing on both sort of natural gas and coal and some other areas where the U.S. Uh, currently feels uh, like it's producing a lot of or has a strategic advantage. Um, and I think uh, I think we'll talk a little bit about that more later. But uh, one of the things that India can help do and in many countries that we're going to uh, interact with on, on this new export agenda is to try and help highlight all the ways in which uh, industries in other countries or states in other countries are interested in learning from the U.S. or purchasing technology or having other commercial or business engagement in, with the U.S. And I actually think that that's going to help the U.S. engage uh, in a broader uh, and perhaps more complete export strategy. Again, like I said, kind of focused on um, export of commodities uh, and maybe some particular focus on things like nuclear and CCUS. But I think when you look at the broad range of things that U.S. industry can do in terms of grid technologies and storage and other whole host of, uh, of up and coming uh, technologies that are being deployed in India, we actually have a, a huge array of things that we can uh, participate on. 
Excellent. Well, let's let's take it back then to what some of your respective institutions are doing. So, um, CEW uh, has been informing the, the the federal government of India um, on a lot of its climate and energy strategies. And and something uh, and another conversation that we had, you mentioned that households are the ones that control votes and not villages. And this is within the context uh, of central government targets to to achieve electrification for a large segment of India's uh, population. Um, how is it that these central targets are actually being achieved? And what are some of the sticking points um, and areas where U.S. partnerships might be valuable? You know, India, uh, as in many other things, is a land of contradictions, even in the energy sector. So we've got the largest number of people without access to modern electricity or modern cooking fuels. And yet, the pace at which we are trying to connect households to these energy sources is also unprecedented. Um, so now, uh, as of the last four months, there's a new program in the government of India that goes beyond village electrification to actually making sure that every household is collect, connected to, to electricity, whether through the grid or otherwise, um, within the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Now, to do that, you're basically talking about more than 70,000 households getting connected every day. Mm -hmm. uh, now, that's not something that the, only the central government can do. It is, I mean, ultimately, the energy deprivation is something that the state governments will have to, to handle. So while the central government can provide the initial infrastructure uh, of stringing the wire, et cetera, the state government also has to provide the reliable power, which is where the, the central and the state, you know, it's not a very different story than in the United States where, you know, you've got, you've got a very large energy system where the federal government is then involved but you've got also a very federal structure of governance where in India the states have a role to play. Um, so this is where I think if we can have a bigger conversation between American states and Indian states or American cities and Indian cities, especially when we look at the rollout of distributed generation of energy uh, for more optimal kind of household electrification combined with, say, electric vehicles, combined with grid optimization, et cetera. There are a lot of technical and business model learnings that can be had on both sides and therefore business opportunities as well for, for uh, U U U.S. institutions to, uh, to invest in this rapidly growing modern energy sector in India. Excellent. Well, Rick, I mean, could you share uh, some of the work that the Wadwani chair is, has been spearheading, uh, particularly in unpacking what's happening at the state level and how that kind of fits into uh, some of the need and, and the new types of cooperation that might result? Yeah, so my background uh, from a long time in the private sector, uh, some of the early work that I did in India uh, back in the late 90s was uh, as a 20-year-old as a right out of college with a Russian degree running to Tamil Nadu and Karnataka and Andhra Pradesh and Odisha and Maharashtra and trying to unwind these uh, these contracts from large grid scale uh, U.S. power producers, um, and you know th that was kind of the first entree. And I remember you know going to Delhi, meeting with the central officials, and saying, you know, sir, ma'am, we've got these disputes, these arrears, they're mounting, we've got problems. Can you help? And you know, kind of being laughed out of the room, like your problem is with Tamil Nadu government, it's not with Delhi, and we've got very few tools to actually force states to comply with the. Uh, uh, with the uh, contracts that, that producers had. So, you know, I learned the hard way the, the real power and influence that state governments have in, in operating the grids. 
So coming to CSIS four years ago uh, and, and knowing that there wasn't really a U.S. institution that was trying to follow what was happening at the state level, so we don't even know what's happening there, much less the, the good versus the bad states, um, we, we began monitoring that. And, and we have a weekly update. We have a variety of tools we began to create. We even have a private interagency meeting that we organize uh, every few months so that people that are engaging states can share. And that led to the creation of this program, which is uh, underwritten by the U.S. Department of State, called the State and Urban Initiative, where we've been running around interviewing state governments across India and finding out what are the areas, you know, some of the things that Dara and Abba talked about. Are they focused on storage? Are they focused on, um, on expanding mini-grids, home, home solar? What, what is it that states have where if we could bring some of America's leading minds to the table, you know, from MIT and Stanford or, or from uh, research institutions or, or, or U.S. state governments, where are the areas where they could actually provide some useful input, whether it's money or expertise or whatever? And then we find those U.S. institutions, and then we try to bring them all together around a series of workshops, the first of which we held last year, uh, looking at modernizing the grids and the grids of the future. This year we'll look at uh, energy storage. We'll look at, uh, um, uh, we'll look at uh, uh, different types of electric vehicles. So, um, so that's been a novel uh, enterprise so far, and, and so far I think that some of the learnings we've had there uh, we find a lot of U.S. partners suddenly know the roadmaps. They've got something. They know India was a place they wanted to go to. Where do you begin? 29 states. Some say yes. Some say no. You don't even know where to begin on that necessarily. So uh, so we found a surprising level of uh, U.S. takers so far for actually trying to inject themselves in this work plan, another state and urban initiative. And from the CSIS Energy and National Security Program side of things, just as our Wadwani chair has done a truly remarkable job of highlighting the strategic importance of Indian states and trying to keep non-Indian experts like myself uh, understanding what's going on there. Uh, we in the energy program really try hard to help policymakers and companies and other stakeholders understand how the energy system is changing uh, and what to make of you know the latest technological advancements or policy trends or market movements. And so uh, we've really enjoyed bringing these two complementary strengths together here at CSIS to support uh, the important work of the U.S.-India state and urban partnership on energy. Um, I just want to go back to something that Arunabha had said about the business model and technical sector learnings uh, in a variety of areas in India. Earlier today, uh, we were hosting Arunabha for a talk. He mentioned the sort of tension between the federal state policy, federal level policymakers and state level policymakers um, in, on energy activity. And, you know, I find that that tension exists uh, not only in almost every country around the world, it's certainly more punctuated in some than others, um, but it's also kind of cyclical. Uh, we go through these periods of time where people think about national level leadership and federal level leadership. And um, it's really important for setting goals and setting targets, a broad policy agenda, whether it's energy security or emissions reduction or local air pollution or competitiveness uh, in manufacturing. Um, but then you get to these periods of time where it really is about implementation. It's about states and regions, local communities that are trying to um, make good on these things. And I think particularly right now, we're in one of those periods where enacting the, the sort of guts of those, um, those policy objectives, trying to actually achieve those targets, whether it's 
uh, the renewable energy targets uh, at the at, within various Indian states or the performance of the DISCOMs or in the U.S. trying to create new innovation hubs or uh, deploy more EV charging infrastructure, whatever the case might be, uh, really at the state and local level is where we're achieving real learning right now. And I think it's really important um, for us to have as much collaboration on that as possible. In fact, you know, I often hear that, you know, okay, the world needs to care about India's energy consumption because it's going to be so large at some point. We tend to think in broad aggregate figures uh, when we look at the global energy landscape. But really, right now, what's important to the energy sector is understanding the kind of innovation and learning that is happening within the Indian context uh, for new technologies and, uh, and what the experience is in deploying those. And I think that that will have lessons for other developing economies, developed economies, uh, and, uh, and really makes it important to track what's going on there. Great. Well, I mean, we've talked about a new model for engagement. If we could step back and look at sector-wise uh, efforts to engage with India under this administration, we've heard a lot about um, the role of natural gas um, and uh, India as a gas market uh, for the United States. Uh, we've also talked about um, the role of coal and, and how American coal can have a comeback thanks to India's need for coal. Um, what, are, what are the sort of, can you unpack that a little bit for us, um, Ernaba? You know, is, is there a real, uh, what's, what's happening with the coal story in India? And, um, and also the, the natural gas needs. I mean, there's obviously a, a national gas uh, grid network that's uh, supposedly being developed. There's there's a need from a cooking perspective. Um, are, the, are these natural avenues for a collaboration for this new administration to take? Well, again, Kartika, they, they, they are kind of uh, continuation uh, from what, what has been negotiated with the, between the two governments previously. For instance, this month, well, now we are about to enter into February, but January we are supposed to have received uh, the first shipment of U.S. LNG um, uh, into, into India. And that took a few years because your gasification facility had to be built out and, and the liquefaction facility had to be built out um, it, uh, on, on both sides. And, and, but the point is that technology is moving faster than we're, we're aware of. So when we negotiated the purchase of US LNG, um, at the margin to build out a kind of spinning reserve capacity for India, it made sense. But the price of renewables in this interim, about three or four years, uh, have crashed by 60, 70%. Um, our solar and wind tariffs are among the lowest in the world. Um, now that combined with the fact that coal remains a central part of the Indian electricity system, it gives very little room for maneuver at the margin for new gas power plants to come on board. So you've got about 20,000 megawatts of gas-based capacity that's uh, effectively lying idle, um, you know, and, and, and therefore it's going to be hard to inject more natural gas into the electricity sector in the near future. As renewables grows out in a big way and you need the peaking capacity uh, through, a, through, a, uh, a, through, through a more nimble system based on gas, the role of gas increases. Now, where does that leave coal? Um, as I said, it's it's about more than 80% of our uh, installed energy capacity, electricity capacity. But again, because of the state of the financial health of our utilities, a lot of the coal power assets are also not performing optimally. 
because the utility is, is not able to offtake that coal-based power. So again, in the near future, we've got about 50,000 megawatts of coal being built, but there's not room for more coal to be, to be, uh, to be built. So there is, so what we've got to do, energy sector investments are always long-term and therefore very hard to predict. Uh, but what we've got to do is therefore still keep our eye on the long-term. The long-term is that there is going to be a big role for coal, there is going to be a big, reasonably okayish okay role for gas, and a very big role for renewables. That's how India's energy sector, electricity sector, is going to expand. And if we can look beyond the short-term challenges of whether there's an off-taker today or not, uh, I think there's still opportunity to build out more efficient infrastructure, use gas for industrial uh, heat purposes, not just for electricity generation, for cooking fuel purposes, and so forth. So there's a range of opportunities in what is going to be one of the most dynamic energy markets in the world. Thank you. And then, I mean, speaking to that, then, um, you know, a lot of what the Wadwani chair tracks is um, is reforms at the federal level that can have an impact uh, on India's energy sector, both at the central as well as the state level. What are the kinds of reforms, um, Rick, that private sector is watching that might have an impact uh, for their engagement in India, particularly private sector from the U.S.? Yeah. I always, I always recommend that anytime a U.S. institution is thinking about engaging India, um, instead of trying to dream up your own ideas and injecting them, it helps if you can glom onto something that the Indian government is already trying to do. And so, you know, it's a great point to bring up on the energy front. I mean, you've got so many targets, right? The Uday bailout program for the broke state distribution utilities, power for all, bringing electricity to every home. Um, you've got this renewables target, 175 gigawatts by 2022. You've got even apart from the energy, uh, from the electric power grid, um, the coal reforms, the oil and gas reforms that have happened. Um, I don't know that there's been enough U.S. attention from companies on, on a lot of these areas. Um, probably, you know, a lot of folks think back from having tried maybe five years ago or 10 years ago, and they say, it's still India. I couldn't do it then. I can't do it now. Why would I go back there? Um, but India occasionally changes sort of rapidly. And when you've got initiatives of this size and as much time and attention as Prime Minister Modi has put on energy reforms, again, going all the way from coal to renewables, right? I mean, he's made changes, more progressive changes um, in, in just about all these areas. I mean, just, uh, just in the last few days, um, we saw the first round of, of bidding uh, of auctions uh, under the new uh, oil and gas policy. There were some small blocks that were hived off of the PSU oil and gas companies uh, uh, about two years ago, I guess. But uh, this is the first major block there. And the new regulatory regime, I mean, you know, pricing had been a, a restriction that folks had went against. But now, if you, especially if you find in deep water, high pressure areas, you got a lot more freedom on pricing. Um, you can choose your own blocks. They'll be open for bid, so you don't get to do it, you know, kind of secretly. But uh, you get to choose your own blocks rather than going after predefined blocks and all that. So if you if you get a gas license and you find oil, you can exploit it. That wasn't even the case before. So a lot of inconsistencies in that area been, have been ironed out. Um, I don't know yet whether there's a lot of uh, global interest in that yet, but there sure should be. And that's part of the reason you have these dialogues too. I believe that for the uh, for the for the strategic energy dialogue that's going to take place in Delhi, they're trying to bring business for the first time in, in a little while. So I do like the fact that they're using government to government to try to trigger a little bit of corporate interest because I think there is a lot happening in the energy sector that maybe the U.S. corporate side is ignoring so far. I totally agree with Rick that there's a tar target-rich environment for the private sector and an impressive uh, areas of reform 
um, that are happening uh, throughout India and, and probably is much different from when uh, Rick started out his uh, his career uh, uh, working uh, working on the ground uh, in India to get some get deals done. Um, I do think that for an outsider, all that dynamism can certainly obscure uh, the real opportunities. It makes it really hard to figure out what's moving and what's just spinning. And this is actually why I see the State Department-sponsored work that we're doing is so important um, because uh, – and also the initiatives like the task force, which point out uh, that there is a strategic long-term advantage that we gain by dedicating ourselves to working together on some of these issues, in particular energy. Day to day on a transactive or business basis, it might be hard to close a deal still uh, in India. Uh, businesses might still find some of those difficulties that, that I think Rick was talking about. But I do think it actually helps when governments come together at sort of multiple levels, like I was saying before, to try and um, ease those burdens, to highlight ways in which they can uh, cooperate, to make things easier where possible, to have that kind of engagement. Um, it, it's fundamentally the way the energy sector and diplomacy have intersected for the history of, uh, of energy development, right? I mean, government-to-government cooperation has been a huge part uh, of making sure that um, even when it's difficult to have ongoing engagement and learning and economic opportunity between two countries, that there is a kind of a strategic framework within it with uh, that it sits within. Uh, and I think that that's really, uh, really, really important. But um, but I'd be interested in Arunabha's perspective on company or commercial opportunities in India and how and how he thinks about that landscape. The issue here in in the energy sector in India is that you know from a business perspective. If you were, say, a, a, a solar manufacturer, um, you look at only the solar sector. If you were, you know, Westinghouse, you're thinking about, you know, nuclear reactors. If you're a gas, you're thinking about gas. And that's fair. But if you think about energy, then you see a different whole horizon opening up. And that's where I think it's, Rick was saying, I mean, don't, don't come with your solution, try to fit into a problem, try and understand the problem. And India is going to be the economy that's going to have the largest shift of people in terms of access from traditional to modern energy. It's going to have the largest movement of people from rural to urban areas. It's going to be the most important country at the margin in terms of impacts on global energy markets. And its choice of its energy mix will impact global climate change, right? This is really what's going to happen in India over the next three decades. Now, if I were an energy company, regardless of whether I'm doing oil, gas, coal, nuclear, renewables, I'm going to look at this market and see how is this market going to develop, right? Uh, and then you get opportunity in technology, in business models, in financial models. So... I would urge American business and American institutions at a state or city level to look at, to try and understand this, 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 this dynamism that's going on in India. The other quick point I want to make is as India and the United States look at energy, it's important to emphasize the importance of markets. The U.S., of course, values the role of markets. But when you look at subsidy reforms in India, new regulations, the way our renewables have rolled out, 
it's far more market friendly than what, say, I would argue when China has managed to do. And therefore, this convergence of two democracies that are reliant on market-based rollout of new energy infrastructure allows us to think about what can India do for the U.S., which is offered that big market, what can U.S. do for India in terms of technology or finance, but more importantly, what can India and the U.S. do together for the rest of the world, whether it's investment in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia and South America, the combination of low-cost kind of innovation in India with, you know, advanced technology and financial markets in, in the U.S. offers a, 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 a different kind of package to the rest of the world than top-down, state finance, big infrastructure build-out uh, that seems to be, um, you know, attractive uh, if of some other parts of the world. You have been listening to Energy 360. Thanks everyone for joining us and we hope you'll join us next week.